You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with Tobias Bakel. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Brian Humphrey. And you're listening to a special showcase episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is a segment in which Dave and I have the great pleasure to sit down and share the microphone with some really cool, cool people. And uh, today uh, is definitely no exception. And I'm really looking forward to this one because I have some really great questions. But before we get to that... (laughs) Dave. Ah, well, we need to introduce our guest, our, our guest host. Yes. And, and, and Brian, I got to tell you, um, as, as I was preparing for this show, it's, it struck me how easy it is for, for us to fall into these sort of generalized perceptions of the world. Uh, uh, I mean, our, our perceptions are grounded in our experience, which isn't a bad thing. But if all we've experienced is middle-aged white dudes and reruns of Sanford and Son, then our perceptions may be a bit skewed. Uh, <laughs> and for a writer, man, that's death on wheels. Uh, fortunately, our guest host suffers from no such affliction. Uh, he was born in the Caribbean, Grenada to be precise, uh, wow. and lived on a boat for the first decade or so of his life. Now, if our perceptions are defined by our experience, I want you to imagine how his perceptions must have evolved. Okay, cramped quarters, but complete freedom. Your address was whatever dock on whatever island in whatever country you happened to pull into. Uh, Plus, you know, middle-aged white dudes are in a profound minority in the Caribbean of the 1980s. Uh, So our guest host grew up with a dramatically different perception of place and people. Now, as a kid, his mom would entertain him for hours by handing him a matchbox stuffed with slips of paper, and, and each slip would have a single word on it, and he'd spend hours constructing sentences from those slips of paper. I mean, he was, he was developing mad grammatical skills while most kids were learning to write their names. So definitely <laughs> in the Head Start program here. Now, of course, living in Grenada, he saw a lot of things that most of us never have to deal with. Uh, Some of his first memories are of the invasion of Grenada and the overthrow of the government. Now, living through that experience is as much a part of him as the, the, the Clive Cussler and the Arthur C. Clarke and the Highland books that he was cutting his young teeth on. Uh, so the political upheaval and turmoil left their mark, even as Clarke's childhood's end was blowing his mind. Now, he's certainly no stranger to the winds of change, uh, but when he turned 15, uh, those winds blew particularly hard. Uh, Hurricane Maryland blew through the Caribbean, destroying the boat that was his home for his whole life. Uh, And in a kind of reverse Wizard of Oz effect, our guest host ended up in Ohio. Now, I want you all to wrap your head around that transition for a while. 
but he was determined to walk the road of literary awesomeness. And in 1998, he started a blog about his efforts at getting published. Uh, and it opened up a whole new world to him of networking with other writers and accessing this wider digital community. And that's how he learned about the Clarion Writers Workshop. He attended in 1999 and afterwards made his first professional sale, a tale called Fish Merchant. Now, at the same time, another story in Orbit Medieval won, I, I hope I did that right, <laughs> won, won a Writers of the Future contest. Uh, he found he had a taste for the sprint of the short story, and many more of his tales appeared in magazines and anthologies. Now, his first novel and the beginning of his popular Xenowealth trilogy was Crystal Rain, released by Tor in 2006 and described as Caribbean steampunk man. Now, the sequel, Ragamuffin, came out in 2007, and it should come as no surprise that this book, featuring dreadlocked space pirates and starships called Starfunk Ayatollah, was nominated for a Nebula Award. And that one achieved the status of Caribbean space opera. And in 2008, his third novel, Sly Mongoose, hit the shelves. Uh, in fact, 2008 was a really big year for our guest host. He donated his archive to the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections at Northern Illinois University. Uh, he was also tapped as the author of, Brian, this is awesome, the sixth novel in the wildly popular Halo book series. Ooh, uh, cool. Yeah, titled Halo, yeah. The Coal Protocol. Uh, it was published right. in November, and in December, one month later, it was number four on the New York Times bestseller list, baby. Now, he was also hit by something else in 2008, a genetic heart defect that he didn't know about called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Now, shortly after that, he's, God, it was hell of a year, he suffered a pulmonary embolism. Uh, he was laid low and spent three years slowly regaining his ability to get through the day without taking a nap uh, and adapting to some serious revisions in his nutritional paradigms. Uh, but the thing is, and this is what kicks my ass every time, the dude never stopped making stories. 2009 saw the release of his first short story collection, Tides from the New Worlds, and a collaborative short story collection called Halo Evolutions, Essential Tales of the Halo Universe. In 2010, he published an audiobook with Paolo Bacigalupi called The Al <laughs> I know, right? Uh, called The Alchemist and the Executionist. In 2011, he released Nascence, an aptly named collection because the stories featured were from the very beginning of his writing career, each one a failed story that he showcased and examined for its flaws and merits, which that just is such a noble effort uh, and, a, and a real gift to writers that are on their way up in the world. Uh, 2012 saw the release of Arctic Rising and two successfully kickstarted works, The Apocalypse Ocean and Mitigated Futures. Uh, he's made a non-physical appearance on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire uh, as the phone-a-friend lifeline for one of the contestants. And, dear friends, if you ever doubted that heroes walk among us, then know this. All of these achievements were accomplished by a dude with dyslexia. So, dear friends, please welcome to the big chair at the round table, Mr. Tobias Bakel. Tobias, dude, thank you so much for making the time and, and, and sitting down and sharing some thoughts with us. We really appreciate it, sir. Yep. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, 
after an introduction like that, I'm going to do my best to live up to the uh, <laughs> to the hype there. Uh, <laughs> it's well, dude, you lived it. You have lived such an amazing life. Part of it, you know, by circumstance, and and part of it by some of the seriously bold choices that you've made. And, and I'm just, I'm really looking forward to, to to our 20 minutes. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to start our timer here and uh, uh, dive into our 20 minutes with Tobias Bakel. Hit it. All right. Um, Tobias, God, I guess about a month or two ago, you were tweeting, and and you had tweeted, I wish I'd recorded myself talking to an intern yesterday about the importance of loving the object you're creating, a book or et cetera, above other stuff. And I remember thinking, God, I, I wish you'd recorded yourself too, because uh, that <laughs> sounds intriguing. Um, so would you, I, I know that was a while ago, but I'm sure those feelings are still present and relevant. Can you wax a little bit on that relevance and that importance and what it does for you as a writer? I think it's very easy to lose sight of enjoying and being in the moment of creating something. Uh, it's the reason we got into writing. It's the reason we love writing. It's the spark that got us excited about doing what we want to do and in your life of taking care of deadlines trying to meet targets trying to become a better writer trying to make yourself become better uh, dealing with kids at home you know dealing with everything that happens on the daily phone calls and everything like that it's very easy to lose track of of the actual object the actual piece of art that you're set out to create the story that you want to tell and it's very easy for us to forget to live inside of it and and engage with it for what it is. Uh, I'm really spent a lot of time over the last three years, and maybe having a brush with my mortality gets gets <laughs> this sort of very self-reflective state. Uh, but what I really have spent a lot of time doing over the last three years is trying to clarify with myself why I'm doing this. You know, it's you know. Yes, I'd like to make a lot of money. I'd like to be a superstar writer. Uh, John Scalzi on his blog really pointed out that like there's nothing wrong at all with wanting to be someone who gets paid a lot for your writing. And sure. it, you know, that I, I have nothing against that. But on the other hand, you know, I'm not a real estate agent. I'm not a Wall Street banker. I'm a writer. I chose this for a specific reason, and it's not 100% monetary. It's because I wanted to have the same effect on other people that writers had on me when I was young and, and first exploring science fiction in these vistas for myself. So getting back to those roots actually has been really important to me over the past three years. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what it is I do and why it's important to love what I'm doing and enjoy what I'm doing and find that joy again. And I don't know if it's making better writing, but it's making me a lot more uh, happier while you lab. do it. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm really enjoying where I am in life because every once in a while you'll meet someone who's achieved everything that they set out to achieve and they're horribly unhappy individuals. <laughs> A cautionary tale. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And there's nothing so sadder than meeting someone who you know spent their life trying to become a writer and they are a writer and they're making a living at it and they're constantly miserable about all of the issues that come with writing. And there's a lot of stuff. Everyone's problems are their own legitimate problems. I don't mean to slight people's problems. And sure. there's always stuff that's going on. There's always 
people slamming your work. There's always stuff you should be doing to promote yourself. There's always, 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 always. But over the last three years, I've actually made a very strong and conscious effort to try and build my day and my life to an extent that the writing is is primary. It's the most important thing. And that the other stuff will have to fall and, and lay like dominoes where it lays outside of that. And I'm also spending a lot of time trying to rediscover the joy of writing so that I am not a miserable bastard all the time <laughs> uh, who sits around moaning about what a wonderful life he has. Because to be honest, man, I have a amazing life that I've built for myself here, both from my freelancing and my writing. I am able to pick and choose when I wake up, which is something most people do not have. I get to pick and choose when I want to take a break and go for a walk for my health. I get to pick and choose a lot of things about how my day is structured that most people don't get to do. And that's a pretty beautiful thing. And I get to spend a significant portion, not all of my day, I still do you know, a, a fair amount of freelance work, but I get to spend most of my day creating art and making shit up for a living. And, <laughs> you know, pretty awesome. Boo yeah. fucking who, right? You know, sort, <laughs> yeah. sort the other stuff out and realize how lucky you are and find that joy. And it's kind of interesting how a lot of other stuff clicks into place once you do that. And so I'm not perfect at it. It's one of those things that you have to learn. But I've really been working at learning to experience the joy of my work. And, you know, there's a concept in, Buddha, in Buddhism called mindfulness. And there's some, conf, you know, some things that apply to it. But mostly it's just sort of, you know, paying attention to the fact that writing can be fun and yes it's hard but it's hard it could be hard like you know when you play a video game that's hard that you still enjoy right. like yes i i just got shot by the boss and i'm gonna have to go back down a level but damn it this is still a lot of fun that's right you know and, and, and you have to go through yeah. that level again and apply everything that you've learned the first time through the second exactly. time through. Exactly. And maybe and, try and, a few things new and see where yeah. it takes you. And that's actually yeah. a very applicable metaphor. There's a lot of stuff in writing where you get knocked down a level and, you know, you can give up and go home and cry about it. Or you can just be like, look, you know, this is fun. I'm, uh, I would like to keep doing this even when I'm not doing it well. And... You know, what I was trying to impart to my interns was that learning that lesson uh, over the last three years has been actually really important. I've learned it repeatedly prior to that recently, you know, but I kept forgetting it. Yeah. And I've actually made a real conscious effort now not to forget it. And I don't, I don't achieve this every day. I'm not perfect at it. But the more I practice it and the more I try to, you know, create art joyfully um, – Boy, it, it has really made a difference in my <laughs> daily mood. And I think overall it's been making a difference in my art and it, it's actually been creating more opportunities for me. But ultimately, even if it doesn't make better art or create more opportunities for me, I'm a healthier human being now That's that true. I don't go like, oh shit, I've got to write this many words to meet my deadline or <laughs> this is stressing me out or yeah. this is going, you know, now it's more a case of like, you know, let's throw myself and, and work on this project and see what I can get done. And it turns out that overall approaching it joyfully, I'm actually writing faster in the last year than I've ever written in my life before. And I'm not forcing myself to because I'm having fun. Excellent. Excellent. Hold on just a second, Tobias. Let's let let Skype get caught up. Apparently, 
there was there was too much awesomeness in that in that last <laughs> sentence and Skype just yeah. totally overloaded. I just overloaded it. Yeah, you did. You did. You totally shut down Skype. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and you know that that life that livelihood that you've achieved did not come you know overnight or even quickly. I mean, you've been working at this for for well over a decade now. Uh, and you made some very bold uh, choices early on. I mean, you, you, I, I, as I recall, you had some problems uh, uh, getting Crystal Rain and the whole Xeno Wealth saga to be accepted by the publishing community. Is that correct? Well, it's a hard pitch to anyone. It's, it's, you know, uh, here is a book with Caribbean dialect and Caribbean people, uh, Rastafarians running starships. It's not what has come before. Um, it really threw people for a loop. It's, it was a hard sell. It was a hard sell. But I love the idea of the book. It's something that I wanted to see on the shelf, and so I fought for it. I fought for it really hard. And it took a lot to get it into publishing, and it's taken a lot to grow my readership. And, you know, to be honest, I could have done many things differently that would have made it easier for me. I could have not written about people of color. I could have made it an all-white cast, which would probably have gained me, you know, more readers. It would have been easier. You know, if I had not had dialect in it, Caribbean dialect, it probably would have been easier um, on the other side, to go more academic, a lot of people were expecting me to write magical realism or a fantasy set in the Caribbean. A lot of editors expressed surprise and said they were kind of expecting me to do something like that. And I really kind of set off to define my own path, which was I wanted to take elements of the Caribbean and write rip-roaring space adventure with them. <laughs> and people who find it really like it, but, you know, it's been, it's been an uphill battle. And I don't mind at all, you know, at, at, at times I was, at times in the past, I could get very frustrated with where I was in my career. And, you know, to be honest, I now have absolutely no regrets because the books are out there. I wrote them. They exist as books for generations to come to read and enjoy. And I don't regret telling the stories because of the stories I wanted to see on the shelf. And I'm extraordinarily proud of that. And, while it may have been frustrating to go through a, a sort of miniature three book death spiral and, you know, have troubles with bookstores, not carrying them and stuff like that. Uh, it, it's all ended up being okay. And I don't mind that I'm still struggling in some cases to find the, uh, the size of audience that I need because I'm still telling the stories that I want to tell and readers are still growing and every year new people find me and it grows and it's every overnight success is 10 years in the making. And <laughs> That's right. I've I've put in six years as a novelist and ten years as a short story writer. So I think you know, in four years, four more years of writing novels, you know, um, I'll probably be in this place where everyone's just like, "Where the hell did that guy come from?" <laughs> wow, you're new. It's like, no, no, I'm not. Uh, and my favorite phrase is, "Everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it's not the end." So just turn a page. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Tobias Bakel after this brief promotional break. Hi, this is Hugh, the host and editor of the Way of the Buffalo podcast. Twice a month, we present the best short fiction of all genres, thought-provoking interviews, and other diverse entertainments. You can find us online at wayofthebuffalopodcast.blogspot.com or search for us on iTunes. Some people say that short fiction is going the way of the buffalo. Come join us, won't you? Now, let's get back to the conversation with Tobias Bacall. 
Well, I'm, I'm fascinated with nascent. I think that's such a cool idea. And so I have a couple questions regarding um, what you did with that. And sure. one of them is, I, I think one of the biggest enemies of writers is fear. Fear of, uh, you know, is the audience going to accept this? Are people going to look at this and say, you know, this is bullshit. So did you have any fear that people would look at this and just as just an attempt to make money off of stories that wouldn't sell elsewhere since that it's, it's a collection of what, you know, you hadn't really done anything with, but then your commentary is so valuable with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. Uh, you know, fear of something is always usually an indicator to me that it's something I should go ahead and do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, artistically, whenever I notice something terrifies me or seems like a really bad idea, I don't know whether it's because I have a little bit of oppositional defiant disorder in me or what, but I tend to go like, ooh, that probably means there's something there (laughs) and that I should investigate this. Uh, Many of my favorite decisions have been made in uh, by guiding myself towards uh, creative fear. So, you know, nascence came about because of two parallel thoughts in my head. Uh, one of them was that, and I admit it in the upfront in the introduction, which was that you know I knew uh, the way I wrote is that I've, I, I tend to write something, and if it doesn't work, I abandon it. I don't revise incessantly until something is perfect because um, in addition to dyslexia, I have ADD. And, and to spend months on a project, what ends up happening is um, I don't make it better. I actually tend to make <laughs> right. it worse. Yeah, and I would yeah. love to be the kind of person that could revise something into perfection. I, I really, like, nothing in my little literary heart wants more than to be able to be that writer. I, 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 I all these writers around me and, and people when I was learning to write who would just keep, you know, telling me you need to revise it until it becomes better. I, I wanted to listen to that advice and, and I tried it and I've spent so many years trying to be a good little writer monkey who would take <laughs> a flawed first draft and keep polishing it until it shone and became a diamond. But what I've learned over 15 years more, you know, I'm, I'm 34. I started this when I was 14. So 20 years now of effort. One thing I've learned about myself now and that I've come to peace with is that if I write something and it doesn't work, I mark the lessons I figure out what I failed at, and I make sure that I apply that later on down the road or try to apply that later on down the road. You know, I I once spent four months on a single short story that I knew was flawed, and I knew why it was flawed, trying to get it to be better. And in the end, I completely just, just completely made a hash of it and lost four months of my life. And so, you know... What I started doing was writing short stories and abandoning them. And so I've had about 50 short stories published, and I have 100 stories that I've completely screwed up. Wow, 50% 50 cut. (laughs) Wow. That's actually good percentages, man. You know, hey, you know, it got me to 50 stories. You know, some writers will write 50 stories and revise 50 stories over the same amount of time as I spent writing 150. It's just easier for me to do 150. So I have a hundred sure. really, really, really shitty stories out there. <laughs> um, well, and, and and you mentioned several times throughout Nascence that uh, that in the beginning of your writer's journey, endings gave you probably one of the biggest headaches. Oh my gosh, um, yes. You know, and it also seems to be a difficulty for you know people like Stephen King, let alone the rest of us. <laughs> so, have 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 you discovered the secret yet of endings? Would you say? You no. Know, uh, I, I don't know if I have a secret, but now I don't 
set out to write something unless I have an ending that I like in mind. That was ah. that that was the hack I learned. Yeah. So I will let short stories sit and stew in my head until I have an idea in my head of of how it should end, what that final sequencing should be, so that I have something to write toward. But you know, I, since I had a hundred of these stories lying around, editors kept saying, you know, once I got to a certain level of success, people would just say like, "Hey, can I see one of those stories? You know, right. maybe I can give you a few editorial suggestions and we can rewrite it to make it uh, publishable." And my response was always like, oh, I, I know exactly what's wrong with these stories. <laughs> <laughs> and no, you're not going to see it. <laughs> That's not the right. problem. The problem is if I try to take your suggestions and rewrite it, I will foobar this beyond all recognition. <laughs> um, so let's, let's not do that. Let me just write a whole new story for you because it'll be less effort for me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just write a whole new one from scratch and it'll be way better than anything I would do. Um, but what, what, what happened to me was that, uh, you know, after I, I sold, uh, started selling a digital copy of my first short story collection, Tides from the New Worlds, I s- started thinking, man, I've got a hundred stories lying around, you know, um, like there's a, there's, there's some potential there to do something with them. But sure. if I just give people, you know, uh, and people were saying like, hey, you should just put your backlist of short stories online for sale. And I'm like, that's a bit cruel. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> you know, it might be damaging to the reputation. Yeah, like. <laughs> right. Here's some crap I wrote 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, pay me for it. Um, so I was just like, well, I like, I like the direction you guys are thinking, but I don't know if we should do that just for the sake of doing it. But then I thought, you know, Robert Silfberg in his uh, collection, uh, The Secret Sharers, has the first couple pages of a short story that he rewrites like six or seven different times, and he explains why he did each of those rewrites. And as a beginning writer, I found that so valuable to see a mm-hmm. writer not quite getting it right and continually iterating to make it right that I thought, wow, it would be really cool if I took these stories that I had that hadn't sold and that I knew what was wrong with them and explained what was wrong with them and why they didn't work and put them together in a collection. And then I felt like I could justify charging someone for that. <laughs> there's, there's other value there besides just the stories themselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's not pay me for the crap I wrote 10 years ago. It's like, well, here's some stuff if you're a huge fan of me, that was my early stuff. And you can see where I was developing. And if you're a real huge fan of mine, you might get a kick out of reading these early, you know, iterations of mine. And Mm -hmm. if you're uh, interested in seeing how a writer gets better and and why stories don't work, here also might be a a collection that interests you. So I put it all together and called it Nascence. And and that's brilliant because, you know, a writer can, you know, there are so many writers that are writing wonderful, wonderful texts on, on how they write and their writing process and things to watch out for. But by providing an actual context yes. and, and a body of work that you can then refer back to and say, see how this paragraph was just utter crap is <laughs> why and, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Right. And that gives, right. you know, then writers can actually take a sample and say, Ooh, that kind of looks like my paragraph. I better take what Tobias yeah. said and oh. fix that bad boy. Absolutely. And, and I have to tell you, Tobias and, and to our listeners, especially, you know, when I, when I picked this up, I thought, Oh, this is kind of a cute idea, but Holy shit. Like I, I've seen so many, I, I would venture to say that, that reading nascence has been more valuable to me as a writer than probably any other writing handbook that I've had just because of that, that one thing, you know, and you're very down to earth. And when you're talking about one of your stories, it's, um, it's in a way that I can look at it and go, Oh, I totally see what you're talking about. And I see that in my writing. And that makes sense to me because that's something that I've been staring at my writing and had no idea 
what was wrong with it until now, you know? And so I, I just think it's great. And I think if, you know, people who are listening go out and buy it because it, it is an invaluable resource for writing. And that's why we're here. Definitely. Definitely. Tobias, I wanted to ask you, um, you did uh, an audio anthology called Metatropolis. Uh, you were collaborating with Scalzi, with Elizabeth Bear, um, Carl Schrader, and Jay Lake. And I, collaborative fiction and, and shared worlds are a personal passion of mine. And I was wondering, just in, in the few minutes that we have remaining to us, if you would uh, uh, wax rhapsodic about that experience. Uh, how did it work in terms of the collaboration process? And, and what did you get out of it as, as a writer? Metatropolis was a lot of fun because we basically got together and, and tried to look just over the horizon at technology and things that are just coming down the pike and go all out and, and think about it. And what was really cool about it is you get, you know, five or six extremely intelligent writers together on a email listserv, just kind of spitballing ideas back and forth. And it, it just kind of generates its own energy. Uh, Carl Schrader, I've always, I've, I've done some collaborate, I've actually collaborated on a short story with him. So I always love stealing anything he puts out there. I mean, <laughs> you know, when you find someone who's like in incredibly smart and just throws away ideas that are just, you know, at you that, that are just, you know, coming out of him as an offhand suggestion that you're going like, man, I could build a career around that. Um, you, you hang on to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and it was just uh, really fun to sort of work with, you know, uh, these uh, really smart, amazing writers. And uh, a couple times we, we, we worked on a listserv, but uh, there's a convention in Detroit called Confusion, which I go to every year. And a lot of us actually kind of end up at Confusion. And usually what ends up happening is every time we do a Metatropolis anthology, at least a handful of us end up getting together and having uh, lunch at, at Confusion and getting together and just spitballing ideas really quickly back and forth with each other and figuring out what we're going to write about and just kind of trying to bounce off of each other. Did, did anyone take point in particular or was the process very organic with a lot of give and take? How did, how did that unfold? It was pretty organic. Uh, you know, Carl definitely is one of the uh, dynamos for, you know, tossing out ideas there for, for me at least. And but like we're all kind of bouncing stuff off. Uh, you know, people are posting pieces of the stories as, as they write them, which gives us more direction. And, you know, there, there is a, I mean, John Scalzi on Metatropolis, the first one was the point guy. Obviously he kind of got it all pulled together and he took lead. Okay. He kind of wrote the final story that pulled all the thre threads together. And the second Metatropolis anthology, it's Jay Lake was uh, taking lead and right now we're working on the third one. So uh, wow. we're, we're still kind of, uh, you know, feeling our way, uh, um, uh, you know, in and out of it right sure. now. And did you find, was there any transformative moments for you or was, did that process, I mean, obviously the writing process is largely everybody's in their own heads. So sure. stepping out of that and, and inviting other people into your process, uh, did you discover anything about your own writing or, or, or any, any revelations that, that <laughs> took you to new levels? Um, not so much for, for the collaboration. Mostly it was just the fun, the gleeful fun of figuring out ways to plug our stories into other people's stories. Okay. Uh, we're not, you know, we're not as tight as some other shared worlds. We're a little bit looser. 
but there are overlaps, you know, and so it was a lot of fun to be chatting with Elizabeth Bear on it, you know, iChat and coming up with ideas to make our stories, you know, sync up together when we were doing the first one. It was fun to be talking to Carl and uh, Mary Robin at Koal on the last one where oh, wow. we uh, were working up on ways to come up with some interesting alternate economics and stuff that we were thinking about. So, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the cool stuff in my story in the second one came from actually Mary and Carl kind of giving me some uh, direction because I was having trouble when I was writing that story, you know, okay. coming up with uh, certain ways to do things. And so it was just a case of they listening to them suggest some ideas until one kind of clicks and you go like, okay, great, you know. Right. It's kind of like what I imagine, you know, the writer's table to be at, like on a show with, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of writers <laughs> tossing stuff at each other and seeing <laughs> And it's nice to kind of get that social element because usually when you're writing, you're just by yourself day in and day out. And it's kind of fun to have a project where you work with other writers. Dude, we sure. couldn't possibly agree more. That's right. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, I, I, I hate to draw this to a close, but the, 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 the clock just, uh, uh, God, it just, it just drew, drew dreadlocks right in front of my face <laughs> and, and walked off the desk and, and, and made rude gestures on its way. So I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, but it was pretty mellow about it. It was. It was totally mellow, man. It was totally, totally <laughs> relaxing. It was rocking to the groove. There was some Bob Marley playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tobias, man, thank you so much. This has been uh, not only a delight, but an enlightenment. There's a lot of good writerly goodness here, and we appreciate you taking the time to share it with us, man. No problem. All right. Brian, what are you taking yeah. away from this 20 minutes? I got uh, I got two two nuggets out of this. The first one was not only love what you do, because we hear that a lot, but do the thing that you love the most and define your own path with it. And and that, I think, was a really pivotal thing. The other thing is if you fear it or fear the response you may get, you should probably do it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think both of those could be tied into like a Joseph Campbell uh, Total. novel at some point. That's awesome. Yes. I, I, I also came away with two things. And because you threw out two, I'm not going to choose. I'm going to throw them both out too. Um, <laughs> uh, if it's not working, let it go. Um, yes. We hear that so many times. You know, hearing hearing Nathan Lowell throw away 25,000 words because he wrote himself into a corner. I mean, both of us, you and I, Brian, are so early. Cringe in our, at that. Yeah. We do. We're so early in our stage of things that that we haven't been there yet. Uh, right. And I think that's important to keep in mind. And the other one is to to have an ending in mind when you sit down to write. Even yes. it doesn't have doesn't have to be a firm ending, but just a direction that you're going. Because I've noticed in 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 all five of the short stories I'm currently working on that I really don't have an ending in mind, and <laughs> and that might have a problem. That might be part of the problem with getting the word count in. So could be awesome, yeah. awesome goodness there. Uh, excellent. Now, friends. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure that that you're you're sitting there scribbling your notes or or hitting the rewind button countless times to write all of this stuff down, and I'm glad that you are. Um, uh, and and while you're doing that, while you've got the pen scribbling or the keyboard clacking, uh, uh, feel free to uh, pay it forward uh, uh, and and spread the word. Let folks know about the roundtable because that's that's probably one of the finest finest ways you can uh, you can help us out. Uh, uh, iTunes is always a good place if you're blogging, blog about us uh, or. or or, you know, if somebody's talking about us, go ahead and type in the comments section. Hey, there's the Roundtable podcast. That's always a good place to go to. Um, and uh, we always love getting mail from you. Several of you have availed yourself of the table at roundtablepodcast.com. Uh, and we are so grateful that you did because we love hearing from you guys. Um, so now 
the cool thing is, is that the delight and, and the wonder of that shared world environment and that dynamic byplay of creative mojo being slung back and forth across the table, you guys just hang out in a couple of days. We're going to do that. We're going to have <laughs> Tobias back. We're going to workshop an awesome story and we're going to see that creative mojo in action. Uh, but that's that's a couple of days away, so you're going to have to fill your time between now and then. Brian, uh, what do you think? Uh, shuffleboard? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Oh, no, 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 no. Go right. Go right. Absolutely. And and friends, as I always tell you, you find what you're looking for. So so look for the good stuff, man. Look for, look for that top shelf blue label goodness, and you will find it. I promise. We will see you in just a couple of days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2013 by the Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or you can send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.